The Republican-led House passes a National Parents' Bill of Rights, which would allow Americans to see more of what's going on in their kids' public schools. But Chuck Schumer says the Senate will not even consider it. What's next in the fight for accountability in America's failing education system? Across the Atlantic in France, the French people are furious that their president is trying to reform entitlements. Is a similar fight coming here? And the left is looking more and more desperate in its attempt to derail the DeSantis Express. We'll explain next on the Midnight Ride podcast. Let's go. It's Monday, March 27th, 2023, and you're listening to your home for misinformation and disinformation, also known as The Truth, the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. I am Connor Coughlin. My brother-in-arms, Paul, has moved from the Big Island to Oahu for a couple more days of spring break. Must be nice. Paul, if you're listening, uh, we definitely want to see you back here next week and uh, hear all about you and the family's exploits out there. I did speak with Paul yesterday, in fact, though, and it was a little depressing to hear. Um, I haven't been to Hawaii for a very long time, since my time in the Navy, actually. Pulled into Pearl Harbor a couple of times many, many years ago. But it was a little depressing to hear from him that blue state governance is just the same in paradise, has the same effects out there on the islands that it does everywhere else. According to Paul, there were very many homeless tent encampments in both the Big Island and Oahu, which is a little depressing to hear, but at least blue states are a little consistent in their governance, but but pretty sad. And he actually sent me some video of just right there in front of the beach, just massive tent encampments on the road. I mean, if you're going to be a homeless person, I would think that Southern California or Hawaii is the place to go, but it definitely is the case that they are there. So, Paul, if you're there, stay safe, enjoy the rest of your vacation, and we will see you one week from now. Back on the mainland and in, in, in our nation's capital, Republicans continue to press forward with an issue that is very important for Paul and I and for many of you who have young children that are attending government schools or public schools, as they are euphemistically known. Education is a very important issue for all of us. It's a winning issue, clearly, for Republicans, specifically the issue of parental rights. Let's go back a couple of years. Remember, Fairfax County and Loudoun County in Virginia, they were the epicenter of a massive parental earthquake in 2021 which shook the very foundations of the teachers and teachers unions and state and federal educational complex. There's no other word to describe the emotions of parents in the wake of the pandemic when their children were sent home with tablets or laptops and they started to hear some of the lessons that were going on. There's no other way to describe it other than rage, just unadulterated rage felt by Virginians in particular, but all around the country. But in Virginia, in Fairfax and Loudoun counties, you had horrific COVID policies. You also had policies which allowed boys to go into girls' bathrooms and even attempts by the administration to hide the fact that there was a sexual assault of a young lady in one of those bathrooms by by a boy. And that was documented nationally. It was something that was more than an embarrassment for the school district there. There were firings, there were lawsuits. All of this stuff that was going on helped flip the governor's mansion in a pretty blue state of Virginia. And so the occupant of said mansion in Richmond went from a Democrat, Governor Blackface, to a Republican. Glenn Youngkin was ushered into the national stage on the bow wave of this parental rage. Further south in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis had already signed into law a Parental Rights and Education Act, which protected young children from any lessons 
on sexuality or gender identity, we're talking about very young kids, kindergarten through third grade. Seems pretty common sense, right? That you're not going to tell a six or seven-year-old anything about sexuality or gender theory, gender ideology. That is very common sense. And yet, DeSantis drew the ire of the political left. And ever since, he has been the victim of a sustained smear campaign. DeSantis, though, was undaunted. He followed that up by taking on higher education. Starting in the K through three, he's he's moved on to higher education. You know that former Nebraska Senator Ben Sass has left the Senate and is now the president of the University of Florida. And DeSantis named to the board on a college that is a state university, it's called the New College of Florida, a team of conservatives. And these are folks who are very pro-parental rights, including journalist and activist Christopher Ruffo, who has been on his own crusade to take on woke policies, DEI departments in universities, discriminatory practices in admissions and everything else. And at this university and, and really throughout higher education in Florida, there's an effort to dismantle the DEI bureaucracy and get back to teaching a classical liberal education. The policies of Yunkin, DeSantis, the new governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and many other GOP governors have national appeal among parents, which is why Kevin McCarthy and the Republican-led House of Representatives took up H.R. 5. It's the fifth bill that they took up for a vote, the the Parents' Bill of Rights Act. And the bill passed on Thursday, 213 to 208. Now, that doesn't sound like uh, it, it passed by a landslide, and it didn't. In fact, five Republicans, mostly Freedom Caucus types, voted against this bill, and there was unanimous Democratic opposition, but it did pass 213 to 208. Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the upper chamber from the state of New York, says that the bill will not be considered in his chamber. So the Parental Bill of Rights Act will not become law, even if it somehow did pass the Senate. There's no way that President Joe Biden would pass it. He is very much aligned with Randy Weingarten and the National Teachers Union, which has an outsized political power in our country. And when Schumer said that it would not be considered, the reason, I didn't really give a lot of reasoning for it, but basically he said something to the effect of the far right MAGA extremists have thrown this out there and we will not consider it. Again, he's got the votes, folks. You need 60 votes in the Senate. There's no way that any of the Democrats are going to swing over to the Republican side. And many of them called the bill hateful because there are some things in the bill related to the parents' rights to know about their children's gender identities. We'll get to that in a minute. But many Democrats basically labeled the Republicans as hateful and bigots, and that they were putting children at risk. So what is in this bill exactly? It was discussed a little bit in the news. There was some good coverage in the news. I don't know how balanced it was, but it wasn't like some of the other efforts in Congress that sometimes don't get covered. This thing, uh, certainly on Fox News, was being covered, but on in the other networks, it was covered a little bit differently. But I want to read you verbatim from the bill so that you understand what Congress was considering here. And this is one of the good things about technology and our system of government is that you can go online to congress.gov and you can read for yourself. Now, I would not urge you to do that with certain things like uh, the Inflation Reduction Act or the Affordable Care Act, whether they're you know, longer than war and peace. But, but this one, I'm going to read verbatim, okay? One of the parts of the Parental Rights in Education Act is an amendment to the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965. And they're adding in this language that the state will ensure that each local educational agency will make sure that the curriculum for an elementary or secondary school grade level is freely and publicly available on the internet, okay? And in a case when it's not freely and publicly available on the internet, maybe 
you considering a rural school or something like that, the elementary or secondary school will publish the curriculum on a publicly accessible website of the agency. That seems pretty good. Allowing parents to see the curriculum on the internet, and if it's not available on the internet, it's got to post on a website or be made available, widely disseminated to the public. Next, in the case of any revision to the state's challenging state academic standards, including any revisions to the level of achievement, the state will post to the homepage of its website and widely disseminate to the public notice of such revisions and a copy of them. Okay, so again, if if we're going to change the standards in the state, parents get to see that too. They get to see the curriculum and any changing standards. Seems pretty common sense. Moving on, the budget. This is big. Each local educational agency report card shall include the budget for the school year for which the report card is being prepared, including all revenues and expenditures, including expenditures made to private entities for the agency as a whole. Okay, parents who pay exorbitant amounts of property taxes get to see where that money goes. To the cent. Seems pretty good. This is just Connor's opinion here. Continuing on, uh, let's go to Section 104 of H.R. 5. They amended the 1965 Elementary and Secondary Education Act to read, a local educational agency receiving funds from the government shall ensure that each elementary school and secondary school posts on a publicly accessible website, or if they do not have a website, a summary notice of the right of parents to information about their children's education as required under this act. The right to review at no or make copies of at no cost to the parents the curriculum of the school, the right to know if the state alters the challenging academic standards, the right to meet with each teacher of their child no less than twice a school year, the right to review the budget, the right to a list of books and other reading materials available in the library of their child's school, and inspect those books and other reading materials, and the right to information about all schools in which their child can enroll, the right to address the school board, the right to any information about violent activity in their child's school, the right to any information about plans to eliminate gifted and talented programs in the child's school, the right to know if their child is not grade level proficient in reading or language arts at the end of third grade, the right to know if any school employee or contractor acts to change a minor child's gender markers, pronouns, or preferred name. This is where it it gets very contentious with the political left. I'm going to summarize this here in in a minute, but the right to know if any school employee tries to change your child's name or gender markers or pronouns. The right to know if if a child's sex-based accommodations, including locker rooms or bathrooms, changes. The right to know if a school employee or contractor acts to treat, advise, or address the cyberbullying of a student, bullying or hazing of a student, so on and so forth. Okay, so in summation, this bill, H.R. 5, is essentially giving, is opening up the schools to the parents, open kimono. They get to see everything there. Every dollar and cents that the parents provide to the school district, they get to see where it is spent. They get to see the curriculum, the standards. And let's just go through this list one by one. And and, and I'll try to point out kind of what the genesis of this is and the argument on the left. First of all, the budget. I don't think I really need to get into this too much. Think of it as a corporation a publicly traded corporation where employees get stock. Everybody who works at that at a place like that has a vested interest in ensuring that money is spent appropriately. It's no different in public schools. The parents that have their children in the schools, they are fully invested. Not only are their children in the schools, they're the ones providing the money. And there is no greater treasure Nothing more important to these people than the well-being of their children, physical well-being, as well as their education. So they should see to the penny what's going on. 
And I'll tell you, this is not something that is opaque in every state in the union. I live out here, out in the American West, and uh, out in my state, you do get to see, or at least in my school district, you do get to see the budget. And just for example, the superintendent out in my school district, if you count all the stipends, including a car bonus and, you know, all the various stipends that they get, makes over $300,000, or at least did, in calendar year 22. That's a lot of money. That's more than the congressmen that are debating this bill. If you go further down into the budget, you will find that paraeducators, these are people who assist, for example, preschool teachers and others, they're in the classrooms with our kids. In my state, they make less than the starting salary at McDonald's. They make less than what fast food workers are making, what people are making at Walmart. It's an absolute disgrace. And it's, and it's why we can't attract, you know, the best and brightest in our schools. Teachers, we all know, are not getting paid enough. By the way, another bill I, I forgot to mention with DeSantis was the Teacher's Bill of Rights. The Teacher's Bill of Rights, which will not only increase salaries for teachers, but also give them the option of paying into these teachers' unions. But back to the budgets, some of the budgets just don't make sense when you look at the salaries and everything else. And in some places, the parents either don't get to see it or they have to be a genius to figure out how to get to the budgets. It should just be right there for everybody to see right out in the open. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. What about this idea of getting reports about changing standards or eliminating gifted and talented education programs. Well, what's that all about? There is a movement afoot by school districts and teachers unions in some cases to eliminate some of the gifted and talented education programs. California was, I think it was San Diego Unified School District, was talking about getting rid of calculus because it was somehow racist. And so they were eliminating advanced math in the name of equity. Parents have a right to know if that's the case. Why? Because maybe they don't want their kids to go to public schools if they cannot get the full benefit of their own aptitude and ability. If things are being eliminated, they have a right to know that because if their children aren't challenged, they need to find out a way to get them into a classroom that will fully endow them with the knowledge that they need to succeed in this 21st century economy. But in some places, they're making unilateral decisions. Parents aren't having a voice in it, and they're doing it kind of in secret in some cases. Parents have a right to know. What about this thing about violent incidents at school? That goes without saying. And unfortunately, this is a trend that's really taking off around the country. Children are becoming more violent. And if you watch TikTok or Twitter, you see videos. I mean, I think two weeks ago, we saw the video of a young man who looked like he weighed about 190 pounds decking a female teacher who took away his Nintendo Switch. And I don't know what happened to that teacher. Clearly, she was headed to the emergency room after that very violent assault. Is it anecdotal? Is it just one incident? No, I don't think it is. Regardless, however many of these incidents occur, the genesis for this particular language in the legislation was the sexual assault of a young lady in Northern Virginia. The parents were lied and told that there, there was no such incident. The boy was transferred to another school where he committed another sexual assault of a young lady in the bathroom. And so it sort of stands to reason that parents would be concerned. Have you, do you have... Have you ever heard of a violent incident in your child's school? Or would you want to know if there was one? Maybe it was in another grade or another classroom, but wouldn't you want to know? I want to know what the environment is. I mean, we send our kids there for six to seven hours a day, 180 days a year, give or take. That's a huge amount of trust that's being placed in these institutions. And they're not returning that trust. They don't trust the parents enough to tell them what's going on. If it's a violent incident in the schools, parents should have a right to know. But I think what really, 
really irks the left the most is this, and they're using this language they always do about LGBTQ minors being put at risk. But what they're saying is, is that they are being put at risk by their own families. This bill, if passed by the Senate and signed by the president, would essentially require, would ban teachers from talking to children and, you know, giving them the ability to talk in class about their new name, their preferred pronouns, quote unquote, without notifying parents. Because we have seen cases where children had a different name at school. They had a different identity at school. If you have a child, let's say you have a 16-year-old girl, okay? Let's say a 15-year-old girl. Okay, so that would be like a sophomore in high school who, you know, her name is Cindy at home, but when she goes to school, her name is Blake. And the teacher refers to her as Blake, you know, refers to her as he. A parent might want to know that. Some people might consider that signs of a larger problem with that young lady's mental health. Now, clearly, people on the left see no problem with this. They see a problem in parents knowing about this. But they're the parents' kids. They're our kids. And so, you know, educators should care about the well-being of their children, the mental health, the safety and security. All educators are trained in identifying signs of abuse. Athletic coaches, same thing. They go through training so that they can see the signs and if they see a child that's being abused, they know how to recognize those signs and they can report it to authorities like Child Protective Services. That's a very good thing. And yes, the majority of teachers are not groomers and they do care about these kids, but they're not your kids. They're our kids. And parents have a right to know if Cindy has a new identity at school that is, you know, she's being, she goes by Blake. What else aren't they telling us? The, I believe that this part of H.R. 5 was the reason why Democrats opposed the law. Hakeem Jeffries, the House Minority Leader, also talked about they're banning books. They want to ban books. We all hold true. The First Amendment is sacred to most Americans, especially lately uh, Americans in the political right. And we remember the days of the banning of To Kill a Mockingbird and books like that. This is not that, folks. Again, going back to the pandemic, when parents got a little bit more of an, a look into their children's schools, they didn't like what they saw. There have been numerous, in, especially in Virginia, but in many other places, pornographic books discovered in middle school library, high school, middle school, maybe even elementary school, books which depict graphic sex acts between adults and kids. Okay, there's no other way to describe this other than pornography. And so, yes, some parents have tried to have those books banned from their public schools, as they should. This is an indefensible position for the left. And yet, they think that they can just throw out these taglines of extreme MAGA Republicans. And let's not forget, folks, that the National School Boards Association, at the prompting of the Department of Justice, not responding to the National School Boards Association, but at the prompting of Merrick Garland's office, wrote a letter to the attorney general asking for help because they felt threatened, et cetera. And the FBI like set up a task force to look into these parents who were coming to these school board meetings. And yes, they were irate. It was a very tough time for America during the pandemic. I went to many of these meetings. You had literally a line down the center of the room with a screaming group of masked Covidians on one side demanding that, you know, there be masking, that there be vaccinations for all the kids, that the schools not be reopened. On the other side, you had, you know, people like me, people like Paul that were not wearing masks saying the masks don't work. I want to see the books in my kid's library, et cetera. So this is a, unfortunately, the education of our children is now caught in the crossfire between the right and the left. What I would like to see is some common sense, common ground 
where people can all agree on things. And I think we start with the budget. I think that is obviously everybody should want to see the budget. You have people on the left that probably want higher teachers pay. I mean, there's a lot of things that superfluous stuff in these budgets that are not, I mean, they just take away from education in general. They take away from teacher pay. They take away from education. And it's mostly administrative stuff. We can start with that, but we should also agree that parents have a right to know what their kid's name is. My God. I mean, have we gotten to the point where the government, our only responsibility is just to bear these children and feed them and clothe them and then turn them over to the government? We saw that in the Soviet Union. We're seeing that in China. This is America, folks. And I think the parents should have rights. Uh, Unfortunately, this issue is going to continue to percolate. So the Senate says no, so what do we do about it? We've talked about this many times on the Midnight Ride. The teachers' unions have tremendous power. The Democratic Party needs the teachers' unions to get reelected. There is so much money. And that is the brilliance of DeSantis and, and the Teachers' Bill of Rights, is to try to strip away some of their power by giving teachers the right to decide if they want to be a member of these unions or not, if they want to pay these exorbitant dues. But as long as those teachers unions are backing the Democratic Party, they're never going to agree to any of these common sense suggestions. And so what that leaves is the nuclear option for many parents. And I know it's hard, but it's homeschooling. The education industry is tremendously powerful because the gravy train of those property taxes keeps coming in and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, we talk about places like Baltimore, Chicago. We've talked about it. We talked about it a month ago on the Midnight Ride. They get all that money. And I mean, in Chicago, they had 60 schools where kids, where no students were functionally literate or functionally, you know, had the math skills. It's insanity. It's got to change. And so homeschooling, when you pull your kids out of the public school, you are taking money out of this teachers union industrial complex. Okay. Every kid they lose hurts. It will eventually break the system or they will lose so much money and power that the Democratic Party will have to listen to us. But a lot of momentum has been made on the teachers front, especially in Florida, Virginia, Arkansas, places like that. Don't give up the fight. There is nothing that is worth fighting for more than the future of our kids and their education. I mean, that is... That is really it in a nutshell, folks. We've got to keep up the fight. Well, with that, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, the left continues to go after Ron DeSantis and another big issue that you're not going to want to miss. Stay tuned. Welcome back. And the 2024 presidential race is crawling along. And as the Democrats mull whether to guarantee Donald Trump's nomination as the Republican presidential candidate for a third time by indicting him for a crime we're not even sure he committed at this point, if they do indict him this week, then you can pretty much pencil in Mr. Trump's name as the Republican nominee, which maybe is what they want. But currently, you know, we've got the elephant in the room, which is America's governor, Ron DeSantis, waiting in the wings. You may have seen his interview with Piers Morgan. He handled himself very well. He handled the Donald Trump criticism very well, I thought. But who's already in the race? Well, Nikki Haley, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy, they've thrown their hats into the ring. We can expect Governor DeSantis, perhaps Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo seems to be ready to run. And there are others that are considering a run as well. And one of those names that is very possible and would bring some major intrigue into the race is former Vice President Mike Pence. He looks like he's considering a run. And there's a little bit of a history lesson here for you Midnight Riders. Pence would become the first Vice President in a very, very long time to run against the President he served. When do you see that? We always see Vice Presidents serving Vice uh, people that they ran against, right? I mean, in 2020, Kamala Harris ran for president. 
she accused Joe Biden of racism, but was more than happy to accept the vice presidency and latch on to his campaign. Wasn't like President Biden needed California, but he had promised to make a diversity hire. And he she was one of three names on that list that somebody gave him. And so she ran against him, lost, she became vice president. Same thing with George H.W. Bush in 1980. He ran against Ronald Reagan. He lost, and he ended up serving as President Reagan's vice president for two terms. He would go on to win the presidency, obviously. But you'd have to go back a long, long time to see when a vice president ran against the president he served, which Pence would be doing if he threw his hat in in 2024. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the only president to serve more than two terms, of course, he served four terms. And his first vice president was a guy from Texas by the name of Nance Garner. Garner was a conservative Democrat, a Southern Democrat, the kind of Democrat that we saw that opposed desegregation and all of these things. And, uh, FDR, the Northern Liberal Democrat, needed those conservative Democrats. And so this was a marriage that was made, and Garner served him for two terms. But during the second term, some of Roosevelt's policies, including advocating for the packing of the Supreme Court, for instance, and opposing Southern Democrats in the midterms of 1938, caused Garner to really doubt whether or not he wanted to continue to serve as vice president. And so in 1940, he ran against the president. The vice president ran against the president. And uh, of course, he lost. And FDR got a new vice president, Henry Wallace. And, and then Wallace was deposed for the fourth term. And Harry Truman came in as the third and final vice president for FDR. So there's a little history lesson for you. It did happen once before in 1940 where a vice president ran against the president he served. This one has all sorts of intrigue, obviously because of the events of January 6th and just the Donald Trump talks a lot about loyalty. He expect, you know, he feels betrayed by Ron DeSantis, et cetera, et cetera. But Trump hasn't been very loyal to some of his most loyal lieutenants, including his vice president. So Pence is an intriguing name. He has zero chance of winning. I don't think he has the charisma or the message to win over voters in the middle, younger voters. I just don't think he has it. He is a good man, and he has a lot of good policies. And one of the policies that he talked about last week was entitlement reform, Social Security being chief among them. This is a huge, huge issue, folks. Social Security, something we all pay into, it's something that Americans count on to survive. And it's going to matter more for our kids. Young people today, I think, are going to have it harder. The economy is becoming more robotic. There's more issues. And I think that the pensions are going to be more important for young people. But when this system came into place, number one, people didn't uh, live as long as they do now. Life expectancy is way up. But what we have in many countries around the world is a generation of people much larger than their successors. And in the coming years, as these people retire, the baby boomers, the other people, it is going to be unsustainable, these pension plans. And we don't need to look any further than our first ally, the country of France. President Emmanuel Macron basically took a unilateral action to try to reform the French pension plan, okay? In France, the retirement age is 62. That's pretty good, right? I mean, Obviously, it would be great if everybody could retire in their mid-50s and uh, get in their RV and, and go visit the national parks, but people are working later and later. They're living longer, but they're also being forced to work because the economy is tough. But in France, 
you can retire at age 62. Macron says, and under Article 49.3 of the French Constitution, he can go around the National Assembly, bypass a vote there, and pass a bill. And he did this to raise the public retirement age to 64. And I think, I don't know if this is, I think this is government retirement, okay? But, you know, in a country like France, that's pretty big, right? So people in France began rioting in the streets. You had thousands of people arrested. Uh, 7,000 demonstrators flooded the Place de la Concorde. I'm not pronouncing that right. Um, that's a giant square in Paris that actually during the French Revolution housed the guillotine. That may be apropos in the future, but 300 activists arrested. And now you have workers, including sanitation workers, okay, who are on strike. So now as you walk around Paris, you can smell trash as it, it's piling up and there is just refuse everywhere as people protest this plan, okay? It's coming to a head in France. But the thing is, is that the amount of workers, France has 16 million retired people right now, but by 2050, that goes up to 21 million people. And with the entire retirement, there are fewer people paying in and way more people paying out. What does that have to do with us? Well, the same demographic challenges apply to us with the ages of our population. And so in the coming years, as the baby boomers retire, it could be unsustainable for us. The problem is, is that politicians on both sides of the aisle say they're not going to touch Social Security. Mike Pence is the only one that I have seen that has the courage, like Macron, to stand up there and say, this is unsustainable. We need to stand up and raise the retirement age gradually, grandfather it in, so no one who is currently getting it will be affected. Nobody who is approaching retirement will be affected, but maybe people under a certain age would, would be getting Social Security at 70 instead of 67, okay? So under one budget proposal that the Republican Budget Committee proposed, People born after the year 1977 would be eligible to retire at 70. Both the, the leftists, the socialists in France, many people in France and Democrats here say, look, we just, all we got to do is raise taxes on the rich and we can keep this going. We've talked about many times on the Midnight Ride what these tax increases would do to our economy further. Why can we not just have an honest discussion about the demographics in our country? and why these massive numbers of people retiring are going to break the system. If we don't repair it, if we don't reform it, it could break or the taxes will be unsustainable. We also saw this in Greece too, when they started reducing entitlements. People in Europe, in France and in Greece have rioted in the streets when you touch these entitlements. But unless we do something about it, in the United States, if unless we address the elephant in the room, that unrest could be coming to our streets. We don't have a budget right now, folks. We have blown past the $31 trillion debt ceiling. Janet Yellen is taking extraordinary measures to keep our economy going. And in about two months, if President Biden and Kevin McCarthy cannot come to a deal, then we are going to have a default on our debt. So there needs to be a deal, and the Republicans are talking about things like reforming Social Security. President Biden, what in what I'm sure he thinks is a brilliant political move in his State of the Union address, basically looked at the Republicans in the gallery and said, I want you to commit right now to not touching Social Security. He said, you guys want to cut Social Security? People were saying, that's a lie, we don't. And he basically said, okay, then you heard it here, folks. He looked into the camera and said, Americans, they don't want to touch Social Security. Donald Trump, the leading candidate for 2024 on the Republican side, says he will not touch Social Security. The only person with the guts to speak the truth on this issue is Mike Pence. Do you, American voter, want your president and your Congress to commit to never reforming this? 
Apparently, you haven't studied the numbers. If we don't do something about it, we will have garbage piling up on our streets. Something to think about there. When we come back, another leftist attempt to besmirch Ron DeSantis. It's destined to fail, and it's desperate. We'll talk about it next on The Midnight Ride. We're back, and... More news out of Florida this past week. The Florida chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, well-known civil rights group, called for the national organization to issue a travel advisory for black Americans to avoid the state of Florida. Why is this all happening? Well, there's two ways of looking at this. The NAACP Florida chapter is upset about some of the policies of Ron DeSantis, which affect their political agenda, policies like dismantling the DEI infrastructure in the state, not approving an AP African-American history course that was proposed in the state. Now, that history course did include things like queer theory, advocating for getting rid of prisons and things like that. It was a very ideological course. It wasn't solely about black history. And I think a course will be approved once it strips out those those Marxist tenets. But the NAACP is a political organization. It is not your grandfather's NAACP. Many of these organizations like the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Anti-Defamation League, they are not resembling those organizations from, let's say, the 1960s. They have a much, much more leftist political bent. And I think that's the case here with this travel advisory. If you have never heard of this travel advisory thing before, well, you don't really know your history. This happened in 2017. The NAACP uh, issued a travel advisory for the state of Missouri, which certainly has a long history of not being the most, shall we say, racially tolerant. Now, and we're talking about decades ago. I, I'm sure that Black Missourians may say that it's still not a great place. But we're in 2023. Things have changed a lot, even in the last six years in Missouri. I'm not defending Missouri, but I'm saying that there is precedent for this travel advisory. And there is a great precedent for this. And you may have seen the movie, the movie Green Book, which came out, I think, in 2018, I think is a must view for all Americans just as a history lesson. There were travel guides, books, um, and the most famous one was called The Green Book. I think it was a motorist's guide for traveling through the South. And it was, it was actually a green book that Black Americans could use to find out which hotels, restaurants, et cetera, they could safely travel through as they traverse the South. You had a lot of, and in the movie, I think there's a world-famous classical pianist who has a, a white bodyguard that is taking him through the South, and he's using this green book to navigate through, whereas in the North, he is lauded and revered, but if he wanted to do a show in Memphis, he needed this book to be safe. This is part of the history of the United States. And it's part of the history that I hope is being taught in Florida. I think Ron DeSantis would agree that that should be part of the AP history course in there and, and not queer theory or the, the abolishment of prisons. But travel guides for black Americans have deep historical roots to the point where particularly older black Americans might hear this advisory and heed it. You know, there are a lot of Americans that like to travel on spring break, for instance, which we've been seeing here recently, or during the winter break, obviously going down to, say, Disney World or Universal Studios or SeaWorld or many of the cruise ship terminals down in South Florida. Florida is a tourist mecca. But if the NAACP, which will vote on this in May, does issue this advisory, and I think for purely political reasons, Many black Americans, I don't know what the number is, but I would say a good number of them will elect to spend their tourism dollars elsewhere. Ironically, 
Black Americans who are fleeing the dystopian hellscapes of California, Illinois, New York, and we're considering Florida may see this advisory and say, yeah, no, I think I'll go to North Carolina instead, or maybe Texas or Tennessee. So it could hurt, hurt Florida's bottom line. Here's what could ultimately happen, though. Do you remember back in 2020 when, or maybe it was 2021, when Georgia passed some election laws that changed the way elections, changed it back to more to a traditional election system, and the Democrats called it voter suppression, and they were trying to take away Black Americans' right to vote. Now, in this past term election, there was record voting totals in Georgia, and in fact, that totally destroyed the Democratic narrative because the laws actually expanded voting sites and early voting in some places, but it did require things like voter ID, which, by the way, a preponderant majority of Black Americans support. But the Major League Baseball All-Star Game moved out of Atlanta. Atlanta is really one of the best cities, most vibrant cities in the United States. You remember they hosted the Olympic Games there, the Summer Olympics. And it's also a city where Black Americans have a large share of the wealth. And there are many Black-owned businesses in the city of Atlanta. Who do you think bore the brunt of the boycotts that came, the virtue signaling, which again was all political? The Democrats were crying foul over these laws, which they thought voter ID would, would hurt their chances in upcoming elections. And so they played their games, they used their media mouthpieces, and they succeeded in getting the All-Star Game moved out of Atlanta. What that, all that did was take money out of the pockets of Black Americans. It also, it also cost a number of Black Americans in Georgia their jobs. And I think that's what's going to happen here in Florida if this travel ban passes. Now, Ron DeSantis is not to not travel ban, but suggested, you know, travel advisory, right? The modern day green book, as it were. Now, DeSantis, not concerned. He came out during the week and said, this is a joke, okay? I'm not concerned about these political games. I'm concerned about getting things done for Floridians. Congressman Byron Donald, I think he's of the Freedom Caucus, happens to be black, said, look, this is a joke. Black Floridians are thriving in this state don't understand why they're doing this, and so nothing to see here. I think there is something to see here, and what I think there is to see is how these organizations, which have been taken over from within by not just Democrats and leftists, but Marxists, are dividing the country. But many people in the Florida coastal regions, particularly in the first coast region, Jacksonville area, you know, they're there are a, there is a significant percentage of the state of Florida that is black, and there is there are business corridors and places where black Americans enjoy the economic benefits of fellow black Americans coming in for vacations. And you know it's restaurants, it's hotels, it's other things. And if this travel advisory goes through, and let's say that that business drops off by twenty percent then it's not just Ron DeSantis and the state of Florida that will be hurting, but it will be these Black-owned businesses that will suffer, and maybe a few of them will go out of business. That is acceptable collateral damage for the NAACP. There is no need for a Green Book in 2023 in the state of Florida. The policies of the state have, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, and in Florida, that has occurred. You have seen great economic numbers. I think a lot of parents do appreciate the efforts of the governor to give them more of a voice in their child's education. And I, whether you are black, white, brown, whatever your ethnicity is, a lot of people do appreciate the fact that their kindergartner will not be told that their gender is something that they can choose and not something that the doctor guessed at the time of their birth. A lot of black Americans support that policy from Governor Ron DeSantis. The NAACP is overplaying their hand here. 
And if they care about black Floridians and black owned businesses, maybe they can find another way to try to get their political agenda through than trying to blackmail the governor of Florida. Ron DeSantis laughs it off and he he said, these people were, were calling us out for our COVID policies in 2021. And then you see them popping up on our beaches. I mean, famously AOC, right? She was criticizing Florida and then she was seen on South Beach. Florida is a tourist destination of choice. I hope that doesn't change, and I hope that all Americans, especially Black Americans, get a chance to enjoy the state of Florida, and maybe they look into these policies a little bit more and say, you know what? These policies are good for our kids, too. But Governor DeSantis, if you're listening, please make sure that the Green Book and the reason why we had to have a Green Book is being taught in your schools, not just in Broward County, but across the state. That is an important part of black history. Black history is American history, should be taught 12 months a year. And I, I know that most conservatives do agree with that. It's just not the DEI. So that's what we've got for this week. We thank you for joining us. As I said, Paul Runyon will be here next Monday. I promise that is a commitment from him. He can only vacation so many weeks a year, but I'm holding down the fort until then. If you like our show, and maybe even if you didn't like it, continue to tell people about it, get spread the word. If you have ideas for us, send us an email to the Midnight Ride Podcast at gmail.com and wherever you're listening on our sponsors of Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening, please give us a five-star rating and tell us what you feel about the podcast. We are so grateful for all of you fellow patriots, and we will be back here again next week for Paul Runyon. I'm Connor Coughlin and the Midnight Ride Podcast. Have a great week. Music.